Hi, I'm Jay from San Diego. I'm Chase from Seattle. I'm Jamie from New York City. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. It's easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Shane Carruth's two films are mind-benders. Primer was beloved by fans for its dense, taut script about time travel. His new movie, Upstream Color, is more organic, but no less packed to the gills with ideas and emotion. Neither is what you might call a popcorn movie. And he doesn't think he'll ever be asked to make one. Like, what kind of... The only James Bond movie I would ever want to see is the one where, like, he loses a hand. And the only Superman movie I'd ever want to see is the one where Superman comes to understand that people have become too reliant on him and um, he can't be their god anymore and basically actively doesn't help them. And, 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 and people end up dying in, in the learning process that they can't rely on their god anymore. I mean, shoot, that sounds kind of amazing. It's Bullseye. This week, I talked to the director, Shane Carruth. His new movie, Upstream Color, has almost no dialogue. It involves a kind of abstract science fiction premise that keeps you engaged the whole way through. He'll explain how he strikes that balance. Uh, I'm not acting like it's all magic or anything. There's, there's an analog to the way everything works, but it's not being talked about. It's just what you're visually watching happens. Then I talked to Rodney Asher, who directed Room 237. It's a documentary about the film The Shining. It doesn't go behind the scenes. It features interviews with people who have radical, amazing theories about the movie. One guy even says that the whole movie is an allegory for Kubrick's faked moon landing. Not that the moon landing didn't happen, but that the footage we see of the moon landing was faked so that it would be better suited for PR purposes. Rodney Asher and I will talk about how plausible all this stuff is and whether authorial intent even matters. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by our favorite culture critics to recommend culture worth your time. This week, we're joined by the husband and wife team behind the hit video game podcast, The Indoor Kids, Emily Gordon and Kumail Nanjiani. Emily, Kumail, (laughs) welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having us. We're very excited to be here. Emily, let's start with your recommendation. A game originally on the Xbox 360, now on iOS, mm-hmm. called Miss Splosion Man. That's it. That's the one. Sounds See. like this is a splosion-based game. It is. Uh, it's all. It's very, very splosion-centric. I would say. Would you say, Camille? I would say it's uh, very, very splosion-based. The uh, and it's a sequel to the original game, which is Splosion Man. Um, and the guys who make Twisted Pixel are the guys who make it. And it's just a really, really imaginative uh, game where you literally have to. Explore yourself in order to progress through levels. They're very clever, very funny game. Um, and I loved it on Xbox, but I've been really into iPad gaming lately. And this game is absolutely amazing. They've done a great job of transferring it over to iPad. And it's a throwback kind of game. It's sort of those old school uh, 2D platformer games going left to right kind of thing, but in a very imaginative and new kind of way. Miss Splosion Man does uh, the Beyonce single ladies dance. when <laughs> That's her, uh, like when she's not doing anything, when you're not moving her. That's what she does. Tell me what the game mechanic of this game is, because I can imagine, like Super Mario Brothers, what a, a platform game that goes left to right. Mm-hmm. How do how does a character exploding fit into that? Well, because when you explode, you you use that to uh, work your way up. Like if you have like a really tall kind of uh, like cliff, 
that you need to get over, you actually have to explode yourself off of walls and then careen back and forth while exploding to get to the next area. Sometimes you, uh, and you can play co-op, which is also amazing. It's a completely different game, co-op and single player. And then you have different levels where you actually have to use your partner. You have to explode off of each other, propel each other in different directions in order to just get through one level. You can also explode and kill bad guys. That's yeah. a simple way of doing it. And um, and you also explode platforms and it's just explosion-based, so, bro. It's really explosion-based. A lot of uh, a lot of getting barrels, kicking, like, exploding barrels so that they go into your enemies, a lot of breaking glass. Uh, it's, it's really well done. Kumail, let's talk about your recommendation, Bioshock Infinite. Of course, <laughs> the whole video game world is aware of Bioshock Infinite. I feel like there is not a man under the age of 45 in my Twitter feed who has not posted at least one tweet about Bioshock Infinite and not a few women as well. Tell me what this game is for those of us who aren't plugged into that world. So Bioshock was this game that came out uh, about five or six years ago. And it really it's the game that gets brought up when people talk uh, talk about video games as art. It had really lofty themes. The gameplay was cool, but it was really the story, uh, which is very surprising. So then the sequel came out as developed by someone else, not as good. Bioshock Infinite, uh, people have been looking forward to this game for years and years. Apparently, it's sort of a troubled development. Um, It's a completely different uh, setting. Now it's a city in the sky. Uh, I really, really think this game nailed it. It's it's got a, a really, really great setting. Uh, it's set in the early nineteen nineteen twelve nineteen around the nineteen ten. Yeah, yeah, it's a city that's sort of uh, aloft in the sky, held up by balloons. But then you find out more. It's quantum physics. It's just got a, a whole sense of a world, you know. And I really, really encourage people to. I mean, this is the game you have to play. You have to play this game. Just to have an opinion on it. Kumail Nanjiani and Emily Gordon are the co-hosts of the podcast, The Indoor Kids. Emily recommends Miss Splosion Man, which you can get on the Xbox 360 or in iOS. And Kumail recommends Bioshock Infinite, which is now available on pretty much every video game platform. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. In 2004, Shane Carruth made a film called Primer. It was about some men who built a time travel machine. Actually, it was really about the implications of the machine, not on the space-time continuum like in most time travel movies, but on two morally and emotionally unprepared engineers. Carruth wrote, directed, and composed the music for it and starred in the film, which he made in Texas with a five-person crew. It won the Grand Jury Award at Sundance and is still the subject of intense passion among film fans. Then he went quiet, at least as far as we, the movie-going public, were concerned. It turns out he pitched a movie to Hollywood, they didn't bite, and then he ended up giving up on that and going to work on a new movie, another tiny one, called Upstream Color. The plot's near impossible to describe, and the film has almost no dialogue, so for us to play a clip would pretty much be futile. But to give you some grounding, I'll I'll talk a bit about the beginning. The female lead is kidnapped and implanted with a strange sort of caterpillar creature. She goes into a trance. Then later she's revived with no real memory of what happened. All she knows is that her life has fallen apart, bank accounts empty, job lost, She finds herself drawn to a man she meets on the subway, who, it turns out, has gone through something similar. 
Like Primer, Upstream Color takes a science fiction premise and goes straight for the feelings embedded in it. Even more so in this case. Upstream Color is a beautiful, poetic, quietly intense film about identity and losing it. Carruth made the unusual move of bringing it to festivals with plans in place already to self-distribute it. It debuted in theaters earlier this month and will be available on demand on Blu-ray and DVD in May. Shane Carruth, welcome to Bullseye. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. I'm, I'm so happy to have you on the show. So when you were not making Primer, before you were making Primer, were you imagining yourself as a filmmaker? Like, did you even, did you work on other films or make other films? Um, I, I didn't make anything. I worked on one uh, lower budget film in Dallas, uh, sort of. I didn't. I had never been on any kind of a set before, and so I, I volunteered. And for whatever reason, they let me do sound uh, when I had no experience. Well, um, it's, and, the reason is that uh, movie makers never have a guy around who can do sound. Yeah, pretty much. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's why independent yep. movies sound so terrible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, I'm starting to get. Uh, I'm starting to get night sweats thinking about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but. So so when you volunteered on that movie, was the idea just I'm going to gather the necessary experience to make a movie because that's what I want to do? Yes. Um, I had I had started writing um, short stories in college. And, and then when I got out, I was uh, working on a novel um, uh, or thought I thought I was. I got about halfway through before I realized that I uh, there were some there were some things about the writing that weren't allowing me to really. Um, meet that form, and that I was really just writing. Uh, what I wanted to write was a screenplay. Tell me what. I was, tell me what do you mean by that? I, I mean I wouldn't uh, in in novel form. I wouldn't uh, do any kind of internal monologue, and I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't ever explain what a character was feeling. I always felt like I needed to find a way to show that through their actions or some other some other thing that you could actually observe if you were in the room watching, um, and. I guess essentially I was because I was only writing what you could see and hear um, and not, you know, the voice of God telling you things. Um, it was essentially screenplays. Um, and I think at the same time I was I was being moved by a lot of uh, um, a lot of film, but specifically a lot of low budget film. And that really put me in the mind of, well, I wonder if it's possible to, to do one of these. It seems audacious. It's really naive is what it was. Um, and it, maybe it still is. I mentioned in the introduction that you uh, wrote Primer and directed it and were the star of it and wrote the music for it and produced it. But filmmaking is is nonetheless a collaborative enterprise, even if you're the person doing all of those different things. Yep. So Absolutely. when you decided you were actually going to make this movie and you were a guy who had done some sound on one independent movie and written half a novel and were a, you know, professional uh, software engineer. Yeah. Who did you have to bring in? Like, who did you have to convince to participate in it? Well, no, I mean, there still wasn't anybody brought in that actually had any experience. It was still, um, uh, it was some, some guys that we were just sort of hacking things together. Um, Anand Upadhyaya was somebody who, who uh, operated camera half the time. Um, and he was a guy that I met um, on that that shoot that I did the sound on, um, but he had you know not much more experience than than I did. You know, like David Sullivan, the actor. He I don't believe he had been in a film before. 
uh, maybe maybe a short of some kind. Um, and then, you know, I remember Reggie Evans uh, ended up running sound. He had never run sound before, so I just tried to tell him everything I knew, which was nothing. Um, I mean, it was really just made up. In Russellfield, I got a hotel room and tried to isolate myself. Wait, what do you mean, isolate? I mean, I closed the windows. I unplugged everything in the room, the telephone, TV, clock, radio, everything. I didn't want to take the chance of, of running into someone I knew or, or seeing something on the news that might... If we're, if we're dealing with causality, and I, I don't even know for sure, I just... What? Took myself out of the equation. Here on the side of caution. Yes. Even now, the movie came out in 2004. Even now, eight, nine years later, there are people on the internet right now, as we speak, arguing about the mechanics <laughs> of the plot of that movie. <laughs> but when I saw it for the first time, which was only recently... Um, I was really surprised that uh, unlike most movies that are uh, about something like that, Primer was not about those machinations at all. Yeah. That really that was, that was just a a context for us to look at these two people. Yeah. It's the shortcut into, into the bigger exploration. Yeah. Yeah, and that, I think what you're saying—that's uh, not to detour this thing and get it into upstream colorland, but basically, that's 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 one of the key motivations for wanting to distribute the film and be able to craft the marketing. Because I think your your expectation when you watched it, watched Primer, was was probably appropriate, and 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 I think if it was sold to you in some other way, sold to you like it was some other um, uh, thing that had. I don't know, just something else on its mind, you know, selling a horror film like a romantic comedy or the other way around, the sort of thing that ends up happening with, with distribution sometimes. Um, I think I think it would have been a different uh, end result. And so it's so important to me with, with the current film, with Upstream Color, to be able to, you know, let people know what this thing is. Not, that it's not all awareness is good awareness. It's that the right kind of awareness is is, is what's appropriate. Um, so that, So that no one's, you know, being sold something they're not going to get. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Shane Carruth directed Primer, a dense, impressive feature debut about time travel. Carruth's new movie, Upstream Color, is equally heady and even more beautiful. Did you have some idea of what your life would be like when you realized that the movie was a success? And, and how did the the facts on the ground compare with that? Um... Yeah, I think I did. I mean, I, I I know what I would have thought from the outside before I was in it. If, if from the outside I saw a little film from nowhere, you know, gets noticed at, at Sundance and then gets a theatrical release, that sounds like the biggest success story I can think of. And and I still count myself incredibly lucky um, that that happened. Um, I, I don't know. With a film like Primer, it's the, the the meetings that I was lucky enough to take, they were not based on people so much wanting to or loving the movie and wanting to make, you know, a bigger, better version of it. They were people that were sort of, I believe, felt like they they were required to meet with me in case I turned out to be the guy. But I don't think anybody genuinely in that town, in in Hollywood anyways, I don't think they really even cared for the film. Um, uh, so so it, it didn't, I don't know how many, I don't think it really opened any doors. It, it let me meet some really wonderful people um, but as far as power or money, 
uh, or getting access to it or production budgets, that did not happen. Could you have like directed Mitsubishi commercials and made money doing <laughs> that or something like that? Um, I don't know if that was on the table. Um, it's 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 a really weird, nuanced situation because I knew that there was very little common ground between what it was that I wanted to do and what it was that they would like a director to do. I didn't. It took me a long time to realize that it wasn't that there was very little common ground. It was that there was no common ground whatsoever. Um, <laughs> so, like you know, not only do do they not want me to do their movie, but I don't want to do their movie. And it's it's uh, it's just who knows who's rejecting who at some point. One of the funny things about being in those situations, and and I don't know if this is your experience, but I've heard it from other people, is that. Because of the way Hollywood and show business works and because of that mechanic where people want to make sure that they at least have coverage for their rear in terms of having met with someone in case they're the next big thing, Mm -hmm. there's this lack of – when you're not getting yeses, you're also not getting nos and it can be really maddening. And I wonder if you had that experience – after your first movie when you were trying to get your second movie made that yeah no i did i mean i guess that's what you know this is this is where i spent the bulk of of my time i there was a project called a topiary that i wrote and was incredibly passionate about um it was going to be effects heavy um it involved you know 10 kids that that get a hold of uh the ability to um create creatures out of rudimentary pieces and it, it was a really i really poured a lot of time into it um I really thought it was um at least the mechanics of the plot were like a very new thing. It was, you know, it's not aliens, it's not robots, it was just something else completely different and really I don't know, there was an aesthetic to it that I was really proud of on top of I really I think it's a it was a really good really good story and a really good exploration um and anyways, so I spent a lot of time on it and then I spent a lot of time on the design of it and um how to get the effects workflow in a place that was aesthetically consistent with with what I thought it needed to be and hopefully keep costs down because I knew um, whatever money I could get, it probably wasn't going to be, you know, one of these massive blockbuster things. So um, I spent a lot of time on that and then I spent some time trying to, you know, raise the money and do meetings and um, it never progressed. And after a while, you realize that these are, these are, there's a lot of people out there that have offices and they've got to fill their docket with meetings seemingly. For me, this is my only project. For them, it's one of 50. They're thinking about maybe, you know, running up to their boss uh, in the year. And it eventually got to the point where um, it wasn't that, I mean, I I, I had to drop Topiary in order to do Upstream Color because I had reached a point that I was so passionate about it that I probably couldn't have seen anything else. Um, I had to go make it. I imagine a big part of what made Upstream Color possible for you was purely mechanical that while it is a film with uh you know a powerful sci-fi doesn't seem quite right but something like that concept it's not one that requires you to be able to you know put an army of robots on screen or or something like that yes exactly and that was one of the i mean that was one of the things i mean the, the the key thing for for upstream color for me was when i realized how emotionally weighty it would be um I just couldn't turn away from it. But I have to admit, you know, the, the sheer fact that I, I look at the story and I realize that I don't have to ask anybody for permission to do this. I can just go do it. 
um, and it's going to be an enormous amount of work, but I can just go do it. Um, and so that was really alluring, and there was definitely a rebellious aspect to it that, that I really liked. After a break, Shane Carruth tells us why he's not likely to direct a superhero movie anytime soon. Plus, comedian Kyle Kinane offers tips on keeping down your cab fare. Don't do what I did when you get a cab. I just jumped in. I just said, we're going on an adventure. (laughs) That's just $80 on the meter right away. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Are you looking to escape your troubles? Hop on a boat. With Maria Bamford, Mark Marin, John Hodgman, Dan Deacon, and a ton of other comedians and musicians. It's the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, September 13th through 16th. Set sail from Miami into the Bahamas for three nights of music, comedy, and yes, shuffleboard. Book your tickets now online at boatparty.biz. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, sponsored by MaximumFun.org, Split Cider, KCRW. And MailChimp. I'll see you on the high seas. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Shane Carruth, is the director of the new movie Upstream Color. It's his second film following 2004's mind bending time travel movie, Primer. Let's talk a little bit about what Upstream Color is and what it's about. Um, it, it's, a, it's a little bit difficult to describe, though, in many ways, it has a pretty simple linear plot. Yeah. Um, what I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it to you to give a, a little bit of context for what it is because I'm not sure what would ruin it for people and what wouldn't and you definitely seem keen on on putting it in context yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is something. This is another reason why I'm so um, uh, why I so badly wanted to to craft the marketing is. Um, I don't think there's there's much words that I can say that will convey. Um, much, oh, and, but I think that the like the trailers and the bits of media they can because um, that's that's the form of narrative that I I work in. Um, the, the the trailers tell you everything you need to know about whether you're a likely candidate for the, or whether this film's a candidate for you or not. Um, they they you know they they tell you the tone of it. They tell you how it moves. They tell you how you're going to get information, um, whether it's compelling or not to you. Um, and that's that's in my mind, more important than a synopsis. Because um, if somebody were to tell me um, or ask me if I want to watch a movie about uh, a college graduate that has an affair with an older woman, I would say, no, thank you. Absolutely not. I'm not interested in that as a plot. And yet The Graduate is my favorite movie or one of my favorite movies um, because it has nothing to do with the plot. It's it's how the information is conveyed. It's, it's, is, is there something richer on its mind? Um, and so, I mean, I can definitely, you know, talk a little bit about the 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 film but it's it's not the film so from my read of upstream color you're investigating sort of the role of uh identity and and the sense of self absolutely in our lives yeah and i am really scared of losing my sense of self um that scares me more than like bears or whatever, you wow. know, mummies. Yeah, I don't like to be out of myself, and and um, it it scares me. Like the idea of you know, like invasion of the body snatchers or Alzheimer's disease are basically the two scariest things in the world to me. Yeah, wow. Do you feel that way? <laughs> um, I do. I mean, that's sort of. I didn't realize it when this started. 
um, because it started as a sort of thought experiment of what happens when I, I was just really interested in in personal narrative and personal identity and and how they're formed and whether anything can be done once they are formed or whether you're just going to you know carry forward with uh, with your projection of yourself you know all the different belief systems that a person might have at a certain point. Um, whether they become cemented, and, and then there really isn't anything interesting going on from that point forward. There's no real malleability or conversation. I was really interested in what happens if, if you if you strip something, if you strip that away from them, and they are forced to rebuild it. Um, they wake up in a moment that they uh, they look around and it looks like they've done some things, and they have to atone for what kind of a person they must be for that to have been true, and then try to follow through with that identity. Um, and um, the the tension that would arise, and 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 the feeling of things being not quite right, and um, being affected at a distance, um, just uh, you know that was that's sort of my that's what the characters end up um, being affected by is things off screen, um, and so that's my way to sort of explore that. Well, let, you know, let's let's just play with every facet of of self and um and the subjective experience it's funny it occurred to me as you were describing that that that's also sort of the setup for the movie the hangover (laughs) yeah okay yeah 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 in the film your two protagonists have essentially lost bits of their lives Mm -hmm. and um during that time have sort of their lives were, were torn apart and so they wake up in a in a sort of shambles not sure what happened and their their sense of identity they become very tied together because they share that uh-huh um do you feel like i mean how do you feel about the fact that love in part is about ceding control over your life and your own personal identity to someone else and, and sharing it with someone else. Uh, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that's why that aspect of it is in the film. Um, I mean, I don't know what my, I don't know if I have a concrete view about whether I think that's a good or a bad thing, but I definitely am interested in whether, whether it is, I'm definitely interested in the question. Um, and that's why I wanted to see it play out, um, on screen because I mean, you know, all the things that you can, that can feel like they're affecting you at a distance, whether it's a religious belief or a cosmic belief or even a scientific belief, or it's a drug or diet or, you know, some sort of biological thing that um, we sort of think we know, but becomes so complicated that it's hard to deduce anything for real. All of these things. And then the, the last one I would add is, is, is an emotional relationship with someone it are things that are, are, are so difficult to talk about objectively or to quantify or, or make empirical. And so that's what the film is playing with. These are, the, these are the things that affect us at a distance and always feeling like they could potentially be off screen. And, and they're, definitely, they're definitely in a place where we can't wrap our heads around them completely. That's what the, that's what the film's playing with. So yeah, that, that romantic promise that exists when people are broken to their core, that's one of the the many things I wanted to tap into and use and and play with um, uh, in doing this. Do you think that you, in part, made this movie that is about um, the unquantifiable because your 
first movie and its and its some of its biggest fans got so deeply engaged in the quantifiable like so deep like i was looking at the at the wikipedia page for primer and it features this huge infographic that yeah. was presumably fan made about how every element of the plot worked in terms of time travel and stuff yeah and i was like holy cow i did not get any of that <laughs> Um, I was too busy being upset about these two guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I hope not. I hope it's not a reaction to that. I don't think that it is. I would be I would be lying if I said that, you know, it's a little disappointing how much of the the time and energy and it's it's my fault. It's my failing has been has been spent on trying to take primer apart as a puzzle as opposed to figuring out what it's subtextually about because you know, I I did I did try to construct it that way in a way that is sort of baffling, but makes um, sense once you take the pieces apart because you need to have a sense of of being this is way too complicated to, for a person to figure out because that's the barrier that our, the two characters are constantly meeting. Um, it's the sheer complication of the arena that they're in. So it, it it needed to have those things, but that's not the end result of the movie, or at least that's not that wasn't my intention for the for the end result of the movie. But anyways, I, I, I don't think Upstream Color is a, it's not, it's not me re- rejecting that and going, oh, well, I'm never going to do a movie that's, uh, you know, uh, that has tech talk in it or that involves, you know, weird um, mechanics of plot. Uh, it's, it was just more that I didn't, all of that stuff looked like it was going to get in the way of, of a film that needed to constantly keep coming back to the subjective. Um, I, everything that happens in the film, everything that's otherworldly, that happens in upstream color is not talked about. We see it happen. We, we, we see one thing go somewhere. We see, you know, two, we know, we know one creature and another are connected and that's all we need to know. Um, and we can infer why that's happening. And I think, I I hope I've done a good enough job that uh, I'm not acting like it's all magic or anything. There's, there's an analog to the way everything works. Um, and there's a certain logic to it, but it's not being talked about. It's just what you're visually watching happens. If you watch a ball fall and it splashes in the water and the water, you know, the water sprays up, you know why that happened. No one needed to tell you that, that, that there was, you know, gravity or mass or whatever involved. Um, so that's, that's the way that Upstream works. Usually in a movie with a complicated premise that has a grounding in science, there's a guy or sometimes lady whose yeah. job it is to be like, Oh, like I'm going to use the example of Star Trek Four. It's yeah. close to the front of my mind. You know, he just goes, "Oh, transparent aluminum. That's what we need. It's <laughs> super strong, but you can see through it, so it's perfect for holding whales in a spaceship." Yeah. Yep. Right, <laughs> and then and then you just move on with whatever else you're doing, right? Yeah. Well, somebody also has to say, "Wait, can you just give that to me in English?" So that yeah. somebody else has the ability to to And one guy has an enhance button on his keyboard. Yeah, exactly. And so, that, here's the thing, I don't want to make fun of all that stuff cuz I, I mean I grew up on that and there's you know it is what it is. It's a utility and I, I it's not like I'm above using um I I don't know. Uh there everybody has tricks. I guess. I, re- I read somewhere though that that your original script for the film had a couple instances of that sort of explanation that you decided were more hindrance than help to people uh, uh, yes. you know, getting it. Yeah, they were nothing that extreme. Um, I mean, I still think with that, with that dialogue in there, it still would have been 
it never would have felt like exposition. Um, but there was information in there about exactly what was happening when. But um, yeah, it just turns out it just, I didn't feel like it was necessary. I felt like everything that we were seeing, we were seeing. And that's all we needed to know about that. <laughs> this is making no sense without context, but yeah. I feel like the movie is very much about feelings and yeah. how it feels. And, you know, I use the word poetic for that reason, that it's about feelings. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said, there's a simple plot that's pretty clear, but it's it's not, you don't feel driven moment to moment by the plot. So when you're making a movie that has those qualities, how do you keep people engaged? Because that's what I was struck by watching this movie is this this weird sort of beautiful abstract movie. And I wanted to stay with it moment to moment, which I yeah. wouldn't have expected from something like that. Well, that's really good to hear. Um, the My only answer to that is if it works, it's because um, I, I can only I can only write or, 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 or make something for an audience member that looks and sounds and t- talks like me. Um, not not looks, but um, that thinks like me, really. You know, like I couldn't do a romantic comedy for for um, for for like college girls, um, and I couldn't do a, a children's show. Um, but but I know how to make a, a a film that I personally would key into if I was to be in the audience. And that I mean, that's not my only guide, but that's more or less the general guide. Um, if if I find myself compelled by the material, or I imagine that I could be. Um, if it was you know coming at me moment by moment, then I just then that's that's the that's the guide. Can you imagine yourself making I don't know like a Batman movie or something? Oh, probably not. No, I mean not that not that anybody would ever let me, anyways. But um, not at this point. I think I, I tried to I tried to imagine what that would look like if if I was ever had that opportunity to do something like that. But it's always it's always um, it would be it would I would it would just go wrong. It would just go wrong. I was thinking about that like like what kind of the only James Bond movie I would ever want to see is the one where like he loses a hand, and the only Superman movie I'd ever want to see <laughs> is the one where Superman comes to understand that people have become too reliant on him, and um, he can't be their god anymore, and basically actively doesn't help them, <laughs> and 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 people end up dying in in the learning process that they can't rely on their god anymore. Like, I mean, that's the only that's the only way to get near these stories for me. Um, so, and nobody would ever pay for that. So, yeah, I don't I don't think I could. I don't think I'm the right guy for those stories. After working on this movie for the years that you spent working on this movie, um, how do you feel differently about the the stuff that the movie is about? I I think something happened in the production of this film where uh, I'm definitely more open to the idea of something intangible and subconscious happening in the in the writing and in the exploration that there is there is some reservoir of information that can be tapped um, without necessarily knowing how you're tapping it. I feel like I've seen enough evidence of that to know that it's a real thing, even though I really don't maybe want it to be a real thing. I'd like to feel like um, um, everything is uh, 
is concrete and well thought out and but uh the reality is is that there are there are things in the film that I feel like I had internalized the story so well and 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 the group of us as filmmakers had internalized the story so well that we started to make choices um that we had to make in sort of a rush and under duress but they wound up being so appropriate that I'm sort of amazed by that. That seems really powerful to me in the context of, you know, you having had to make your first movie literally with one take per shot and have something that was so perfectly planned out that you couldn't deviate from it. The idea that that you can just hold on to a feeling and like and let that feeling in your heart guide you a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's really strange. It's really strange. Yeah, there's there's a bit in the film uh in Upstream where the two lead characters are starting to have their their memories confused. One of they they both think that they have the same childhood story um and it starts off as a very uh, sort of fun little light romantic situation like no that's not that wasn't your childhood friend that was mine um, and then they try to tell the story back to each other but they both feel like they're co-opting it from each other and we see this this conversation sort of splinter over different locations <laughs> now now apparently I'm willing to spell out the movie <laughs> um, now this is just a, a small section of it but um, they uh, um they eventually wind up in a place of real frustration of of both of them being certain that the other one is somehow messing with them and is not being honest about this. And uh, that scene, it existed as a, as a kernel in the script, and then it became more and more important to me. And then the way we executed it became more and more important to me, that it, that it feel almost like found footage and it feel completely different in its cinematic mode um, than, than the rest of the film. And... I, I kept hitting my head against the wall trying to figure out why I was so sure that this needed to be in there. But I, I couldn't I couldn't verbalize why. I just knew that it needed to. And it was only after I had watched the edited scene, you know, probably 30 times and then finally wrote the music for it that I, I, I came to understand why it was so important that it was, you know, about there. They couldn't tell where one of them ended and the other one began. And there was this forced communion between them and you know that's the plot of the the story but the reason it's so important is because that's i believe a very universal common experience among among people that that everything that that's good about the way we are bound can can sometimes feel essentially irritating that it means that we are not ourselves we are somehow mixed and that's that's both a positive and a negative, and to have everything at once in it for for it to be confusing, that's um, I mean that's one of my favorite parts of the film now, um, and I didn't quite know why we were doing it when we were doing it. Uh, I shouldn't have said that out loud, but that's that's true. No, I I really appreciate that you said it out loud. I feel like we're out of time, but I I really appreciate you taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was really great to talk to you. Oh, you too, Jesse. Thank you very much. Shane Carruth's new movie is called Upstream Color. You can see it in movie theaters in April and everywhere else in May.
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Being grown-ups all about making responsible choices and avoiding irresponsible ones. But what if the two weren't mutually exclusive? What if there was a way to be a grown-up and yet also be wild and ridiculous? Comedian Kyle Kinane just might have found the answer. It happened one night after he had a little too much to drink. I think a lot of comedy comes from uh, shared experiences, things that we can relate to. Uh, Keeping that in mind, uh, anybody else in here get so drunk last month you had to call a cab just to take you to Wendy's? Couple, all right, maybe couple, right there. Yeah, get to that that special point in your mid thirties where you realize that drinking responsibly and crying for help just kind of turned into the same thing. Real successful Saturday night home alone. I want those spicy nuggets. You're too drunk to drive. We'll call a cab because you deserve them. I'm doing the right thing. How come it still feels sad? That's what I did. I called a cab, and another grown man drove to my house for money. Because that was his job. And uh, he got to my house, and I uh, jumped in his cab, and I said this. Don't do what I did when you get a cab. I just jumped in, I just said, we're going on an adventure. (laughs) That's just $80 on the meter right away. They don't want to be a tour guide. That's 80 bucks. That's a Peter Pan tax is what that is. So that's the same amount of money if I were to just jump in and be like, take me to Neverland. 80 bucks. You smell like you're probably going to barf in here. So we're starting at 80. Doesn't matter where you're going. And so we drove to the Wendy's, and uh, I made him take me through the drive-thru because I did not trust him not to leave me there. It was fair. He was suspicious of me. I was suspicious of him. It was fair play. But this is where I got in trouble, see, is because he was driving a van cab, which means I had to open the whole side door to place my order. I was like, well, there's no way in hell I'm not going to fall on my ass doing this. So I had one hand wrapped up in the seatbelt and was just kind of hanging out the side like a helicopter machine gunner. I was just kind of hanging out. I realized, like, oh, this is how they do the high-speed ransom exchanges and the action movies I love so much. I'm going to Bruce Willis the shit out of this. So I wasn't even at the window. I was just hanging out. I was like, you throw me the nuggets, I'll throw you the cash. And the lady working there, she, she threw me the little bag. She's got to cut loose. She's working late at a Wendy's. Have some fun with your life. Have some fun with it. So I got this stuff. I'm yelling at the getaway driver. At this point, it's the getaway driver. It's like, I got the package, step on it, go! But he's not in it. He's like, I kind of go with the doors open. I kind of drive with the doors open. But this is illegal. It's an illegal thing for me to do with the door open. I'm like, but we're doing a whole thing right now. Where's your imagination? But somebody clearly had not taken improv classes in college like some other of us have. You are not yes-anding right now. Southern Frosty was going to be for you. Yeah. But you blew it. Yeah. Spent $114. Two Frosties and a dozen nuggets. Because I'm an American hero. (laughs) 
Kalkane from his recent stand-up special, Whiskey Icarus, available on video and audio. Look for him on tour throughout April, including dates in Indiana and Texas. He'll also be at Max FunCon, May 31st through June 2nd in Lake Arrowhead, California. You can find him online at kylekinane.tumblr.com. Did Stanley Kubrick help fake the moon landing footage? After a break, Rodney Asher reveals some of the more radical interpretations of Kubrick's classic film, The Shining. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Cameron Esposito, and I'm the host of Maximum Fun's new podcast, Wham Bam Pow, a sci-fi movie show and action movies also. Did I forget to say action movies? Every week I'll be joined by Mr. Ricky Carmona. Ms. Rhea Butcher. And we are going to chat about films. We're going to tell jokes. We're going to be hilarious. We're going to play games. We're going to have guests. We're going to give reviews. It's going to blow your mind. If you want to listen to the show, you can find it at MaximumFun.org. Or you can subscribe on iTunes. Can you believe how many things I just listed? So many things. Wow! <laughs> That's great. Bullseye's on Twitter. Follow us online at twitter.com slash bullseye. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Stanley Kubrick was a notoriously careful filmmaker. There's a story in John Ronson's most recent book about visiting Kubrick's archive. There was a file of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of photographs of doors. Every door on an entire street in London. Miles of doors. They were location research for a single shot in Eyes Wide Shut. Kubrick, by the way, later decided to create the door on a soundstage. Because of the care Kubrick put into his films, they make for fascinating close readings. Rodney Asher's new documentary, Room 237, is a document of five obsessive theories about Kubrick's horror masterpiece, The Shining. Is it an allegory about the Holocaust? Is it filled with allusions to a faked moon landing? Does that ski poster look like a minotaur? Or does the way we look at great art reflect as much of ourselves as it does of the artist's intention? Ronnie, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Well, thanks. Uh, it's great to be here, Jesse. So did you start on this road by obsessing over Kubrick films yourself? Well, I mean, Kubrick's always been, you know, basically my favorite filmmaker, my first favorite filmmaker, and someone whose work I go to again and again. And Your first, really? How old were you when you saw your first Kubrick film? What was the first Kubrick film you saw? Might have been The Shining. I mean, I snuck in when I was a little kid and only made it, you know, maybe 10 or 15 minutes in before having to sort of slink out the back door. But, you know, it left a kind of a scar that I kept picking at. You know, as a kid, I would watch it and identify with Danny and see through his eyes and the terror of, you know, not being able to keep your family from making terrible choices because you're just a little kid and you don't have a lot of power. But, you know, The Shining changes as you change. Everyone seems to have a, this really complicated two-way relationship to it. When my buddy Tim Kirk, who wound up producing this film, discovered one of these really deep, mind-blowing symbolic analyses of The Shining, there was nothing else that I wanted to spend my time doing other than finding more and digging deeper. What was the first obsessive close reading of The Shining that your producer turned you on to? It was Jay Widener's article about um, the allusions to the space program. 
you're underselling this, <laughs> the thesis of this argument. I, I know I'm terribly naive, but I keep hoping to keep that element of the film a surprise of some sort, even though most people who talk about the movie frequently lead with it. <laughs> I, I've gotten a lot of flack from people who work for NASA um, and, you know, I, I want to tell them that, I, you know, I'm not saying that we didn't go to the moon and I'm not saying that their technology that they helped build isn't great and awesome and everything. I'm just saying that what we saw was faked. The reason that he changed it from 217 to 237 was because the room, room 237 in the film is, represents the moon landing stage where he worked. Standard science textbooks said the mean distance of the moon from the Earth is exactly 237,000 miles. There's a, a woman who is obsessed with the physical geography of the film. She maps it as you would like a Dungeons and Dragons game. For her, the element of the film that Kubrick added that wasn't in the novel about a maze is particularly significant. Well, I mean, her name is Julie Kearns, and she's a pretty amazing person. I mean, she's a poet and a photographer and a painter, and she spent a lot of time thinking about The Shining. And on on her website, she's talked about a ton of topics. We were only able to focus on a few. Of particular interest to her is sort of the M.C. Escher-esque impossibility of the floor plan of the Overlook Hotel, that if you trace the paths that people walk through the movie and are able to sort of extrapolate that into a map, it's kind of this impossible puzzles. There are windows in rooms that should be entirely, I guess, landlocked. There are hallways that come out from nowhere. There are rooms that if you Again, if you sort of reverse engineer the relationship to one another based on the turns the characters make while going through hallways, some of these rooms are seemingly superimposed on top of one another. That ties into sort of an exploration of themes, you know, kind of surrounding the myth of, you know, the Minotaur and Theseus and what Jack and Danny's relationship to that story is. So that clearly the maze is a maze, but what's interesting to think about it is that the hotel itself is also a maze. Well, I mean, you could say that the, you know, the geography of this film and, and you you show some illustrations of essentially maps of spaces in the film is, I guess the adjective might be cockamamie. But then again, like, that's just how it goes in movies. It's like in the streets of San Francisco or in, in Bullet. You know, they jump off a mountain in Daly City and they land in Pacific Heights, uh, you know, 20 miles away. Um, that's how movies work. So why is this worth listening to? Well, I mean, there's a couple of things, not the least of which is that Kubrick, being the kind of perfectionist that he is, it's easier to suspect that more things that turn up in one of his films are intentional than you might find in the work of another filmmaker. And if you start to look at this sort of this idea of kind of a maze-like design to the hotel, I mean, it makes sense thematically for a couple of reasons, which I think also help defend the idea that it's intentional. Certainly there's a theme, there's a maze-like theme to the movie. Things work in sort, there's sort of a weird dream-like logic to it. And, you know, the hotel is supposed to be creepy. 
impossible passageways and that sort of thing are, if nothing else, kind of creepy. And in fact, this is one of the few things that, you know, anyone directly involved with The Shining has ever really confirmed, that there was an interview in, a, in the British Guardian a couple months ago where John Harlan, Kubrick's brother-in-law and the producer of the film, confirmed that the layout of the hotel was supposed to be impossible because it's a bizarre, dreamlike, haunted space, you know, which kind of sent shockwaves through the Shining analysis community since no one has ever been on record you know, confirming or denying that kind of thing before. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rodney Asher, director of the documentary Room 237. It's about Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and features interviews with various theorists who interpret the film in radical ways. There's a man in the film who is a historian, a Holocaust scholar, who sees The Shining as a film that is essentially about the Holocaust. It seems to be his opinion that because Kubrick thought that there was no way to directly make a film about the Holocaust because it was too vast and evil, that he would instead make this horror film and include allusions to the Holocaust. Can you describe to me some of the connections that, that he sees? Well, he takes it you know, from a couple of from a couple of angles. I mean, what, one thing that was interesting is that, like a few of the other people in the movie, often they see one clue that's kind of points to the idea, and then they're able to find other references to it. They have these epiphanies. Yeah. And then it's kind of an exciting emotional experience in some cases. For one thing, there's this typewriter that Jack is always writing at, and it's maybe an unusual choice because it's a German brand, and the name of the brand is Adler, which means eagle, which has a lot of importance in the visual history of the Nazis. And Jeffrey Cox is also saying that he, he finds some really interesting things talking about, you know, the history of the Holocaust and how bureaucratic it was. These horrific crimes, you know, were kind of laid into action by petty bureaucrats in offices typing away at their little typewriters and that the typewriter, you know, is made more and more prominent throughout the film, not the least of which because at a certain point it changes colors. Kubrick read Raoul Hilberg's uh, the destruction of the European Jews. And Hilberg's major theme in there is that he focuses on the apparatus of killing and he emphasizes how bureaucratic it was and how it was a matter of lists and typewriters. Uh, uh, Spielberg picked that up in Schindler's List, of course. I mean, the film begins with typewriters. I had a chance to talk to Raoul Hilberg. He visited Albion College and he said that he and Kubrick corresponded about this. With a, a work of art as great as this, it, it shouldn't necessarily have to be the filmmaker's intention in, in order for the work of art to be great. Well, sure. And I think that's you know, maybe at the end of the day, one of the big questions that 237 is trying to ask, you know, how you can recognize what the artist's intention really was or how important that is. And even Jeffrey Cox, you know, the World War II historian, says, you know, playing out at the end of the movie – these meanings are there whether the artist intended them or not. And, you know, it's the same thing if you're watching A Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, Freddy's Revenge, where on the director's commentary, he swears up and down that he had no idea that this movie was going to look like the story of a high school kid struggling to come out of the closet. That's the way that that movie is, is seen by most people. 
And then it raises other questions of, well, was this someone else's contribution, the screenwriter, the actor, or, you know, was it the result of a hundred sort of subconscious decisions, you know, made on the days that they kind of added up to more than any one of these single decisions, you know, and in trying to nail that down, you know, becomes kind of a comically impossible task. You've immersed yourself in the most unspeakably, unimaginably, indescribably, ineffably specific points of view on a work of art that could be found. These are people with deeply personal and uh, complex, beautifully wrought ideas about this work of art. Is there anything at this point that you're comfortable saying is wrong and I don't just mean in your film. I mean just anyone's interpretation of anything ever. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly not anyone that we talked to in, in in 237. Well, I mean, it becomes the endless question, you know, when you're talking about interpretation of whether the original work of art is a coded message or a completely abstract, you know, painting that's designed for you to have whatever you will. And that always becomes sort of endlessly unanswerable and even... Like if you look at, you know, some Stanley Cooper quotes for guidance, you know, he says something like, you know, people resent being told things straight out and they love puzzles and metaphors and allegories, which doesn't mean that he isn't intending something in particular. And I've heard that he loved to hear people explain to him the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey and would never correct them, which again doesn't mean that he had one idea in particular, although he didn't want to dissuade people from having others. I know years ago I went to a lecture with my wife about Ed Ruscha, and he has a book, I think it's called 25 Gas Stations. I, for, I forget the number, and this will show how uncatholic I am. There was an art critic who had like an hour-long presentation saying that this book was actually about the Stations of the Cross and comparing the different gas stations to the different stations and looking at Ed Ruscha's life and growing up in his belief system. And I know at the time, I was, I was probably a different kind of person because I was just pulling my hair out saying... Go ask him. <laughs> <laughs> this is no. This is knowable, isn't it? I've since kind of come to the feeling that even if you asked him, you wouldn't necessarily be able to trust his answer a hundred percent. That he could say, "Oh, that sounds good. That's smarter than anything I came up with." Yeah, or you know, he could not want to sound pompous. He might hide from trying to sound too pretentious and say, I just like gas stations. He could forget. He could mislead. He could not explain himself clearly. So I've come to peace with the unknowability <laughs> of a lot of things. Seriously, though, Stanley Kubrick didn't fake the moon landing, right? Well, he was certainly pretty well qualified for it. If you were going to ask any, if you were going to ask someone <laughs> to I fake watched, the moon landing, I watched an internet video when the guy <laughs> on the internet video was very convincing. <laughs> he said they didn't have the right doodads at the time, and they maybe could have done it ten or fifteen years later. Also, it seems like a real hassle. Well, we need to be clear. You know what Jay Widener is saying in this film, in his own two going on three DVD set of his own, is that not that the moon landing didn't happen but that the footage we see of the moon landing was faked so that it would be better suited for PR purposes. Though we went to the moon, but it, wasn't, it didn't look as cool as that. <laughs> I mean, that also seems pretty cockamamie to me. Fair enough. One thing that we found out in 237 is that many people see The Shining differently. You know, I've got no ground to complain when people see things in 237 differently. 
Well, thanks for taking the time to join us on Bullseye. Sure. Thanks for having me, Jesse. Room 237 is on VOD and in iTunes now. It also rolls out to theaters uh, across the country through the month of April. Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. Most pop music is for teenagers, and that's fine. Teenagers are a perfect fit for pop music. They go a million miles an hour, and they feel everything a thousand times more vividly. Those are pretty much the two things that are good about pop music, right? Otherwise, it's just Kenny G. But there are exceptions. There are great pop songs that are a bit more grown-up. Not more complicated, necessarily, more Baroque. Still simple. Just more lived in. Like the Grand Tour by George Jones. Step right up. Come on in. If you'd like to take the Grand Tour of the lonely house that once was home, sweet home. It's a plain song, plainly sung. Like a lot of great country records, it's almost modest. But it's also strong and deep and rich. It's a song by a man who's felt a few things in his time. The Grand Tour is a tour of a home broken by divorce. Every piece of furniture has a memory. Over there sits the chair where she'd bring the It's a story song, sung in the first person, and although Jones didn't write it, it's hard to imagine anyone else carrying it the way he does. By the time Jones recorded the song in the mid-70s, he was 43, divorced twice, and about to divorce again. He knew some things. He'd lived some things. You can hear it in his voice. Straight ahead, that's the bed Where we lay in love together in He's one of the great American singers and his full, sweet voice is broken, just so. He almost speaks in a few moments of the song. See her picture on the table Don't it look like she be able just to touch me and say good morning dear and by the time he swings into the clothes and opens it up a little lets himself wail a bit if you're not feeling it in your gut you're like I don't know you're dead I love a lot of fast bright fresh new songs there's nothing wrong with an old chestnut once in a while that's my outro. As you leave, you'll see the nursery. Oh, she left me without mercy, taking nothing but her baby and my heart. Step right up. Come on in. 
That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Thomas Madison. Our interstitial music is provided to us by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and their label Memphis Industries for letting us use it. You can find this show and all past Bullseye shows for free at MaximumFun.org. You can also visit us on Twitter, at Bullseye, on Facebook and SoundCloud, where you can share segments with your friends. I guess that's about it. And remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Special thanks this week to Neil Rauch at NPR for engineering the New York side of our interview with Shane Carruth. Our interview with Rodney Asher was edited by Chris Berube. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.